Welcome to Women in Venture Capital, a podcast by students for students. I'm Roshvina. And I'm Anvita. And we are from the Harvard Business School. Our guest today is Christina Nunes, who has spent the last 13 years in advising, investing, and operating in the consumer products industry. She's currently the co-founder of True Beauty Ventures, an emerging growth fund focused on investing in breakthrough growth brands exclusively in beauty, personal care, and wellness. Prior to joining True Beauty Ventures, Christina spent half of her career as an operator in beauty and wellness space. She was most recently the general manager and COO of Clark's Botanicals, a clean botanical skincare brand. Welcome to our show, Christina. We are so happy to have you on. Hello. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. Super. With that, we get right in into our questions. We have some amazing things lined up for you. Uh, the first one we'd love to know from you is, you focused much of your career in the wellness and beauty sectors. Curious to know what drew your interest in these areas and what do you appreciate most about the impact that you've been able to make in them? Yeah, so when I started my career initially, I started off in finance on the investment banking side. And when I looked at all of the various teams that I could be a part of, it was very obvious that consumer overall was an area of focus um, that I wanted to really spend my time on, mainly because I had a direct connection to it. Um, I'm an excellent consumer. I love brands. I love storytelling. And when you compare that to being uh, maybe covering oil and gas or metals and mining or other utilities, uh, consumer was, was a very natural fit for me. So luckily, I was able to start my career in consumer products and retail. And as I continued to progress from investment banking over to private equity, uh, I definitely was gravitating more and more towards areas that I found interesting. And, and beauty and wellness has always been a personal passion of mine. And being fortunate enough to have operated in both industries is um, very you know, happy and pleased that I was able to do that and kind of execute a strategy where what I loved personally is also what I pursued professionally. And when I take a step back and think about uh, you know, how I feel like I've been able to impact um, these areas, I mean, I think of uh, you know, being fortunate enough to love what I do and do what I love. And when you approach something with that level of passion, you just, you, you tend to put more uh, effort and, and, and time into it. So um, I feel like I'm able to give a lot of, you know, my expertise and my resources and time into these areas because I have a personal affinity towards them. Um, and when you think about the, the brands and the founders in these spaces that we're impacting, um, and especially in a post-COVID world where those particular industries, beauty and wellness have had this explosion. Um, I'm able to touch so many interesting founders and brands. And while we may not invest in all of them because we can't, um, I always like to walk away from a conversation with uh, a founder and always offering some piece of advice or expertise or ability to use me as a sounding board in any of the things that they uh, undertake going forward, even if I'm not able to invest in them. So if I can lend that expertise, having the background that, that I have, um, I always try to have them walk away with that. That's really good to hear and completely agree that being an operator 
excited you about the opportunity, the industry and the market, and you just jumped right in to create impact and work alongside founders and really appreciative of what you're doing at True Beauty. Uh, one of the things I keep uh, discussing with, with my fellow founder friends or just, just my circle is that in, in a market, there can there'll be two kinds of products you look at, right? Products or services, so mainly offering. So it's around something that's must have and something that's good to have. Uh, when you're looking at a must have, it's always easier to break in and launch. And then the question is more about scaling. But when you're in the range of a good to have, it's more about how much can you tap into the discretionary spends of the consumer's wallet, right? When we're talking about beauty and wellness, it's on the good border of saying you need wellness products. And now increasingly because of the pandemic, you need to take care of your mental well-being, you need to take care of your health and wellness. Um, and beauty happens to be one of the discretionary spends that almost closest on the border of saying it's between very closer to must have uh, with, with, with the era now. So absolutely. And, and when you think about, and maybe I'll take a step back and, and explain really quickly why we launched True Beauty Ventures, despite the fact that that is my background, having operated in both beauty and wellness, and then my partner's background, um, having been uh, an investor in beauty for over 20 years in three different private equity firms. Um, his name is Rich Gersten, and I've known him for 10 years, and he's been an amazing uh, partner. Um, when we think about the fact that this is, this is an industry that we know so well. This is all we do, we're sector specialists. And we kind of timed that, and it wasn't intentional, but really timed it with the movement, as you just explained, the movement towards uh, self-care and, and kind of the intersection of beauty and health that is wellness. Um, you know, we couldn't have planned it better in that way and in, in finding ourselves in this position to be able to take that sector expertise and bring it to emerging growth brands that are launching every day. It seems like there's you know 10, 20 new brands that are launching. So we are so fortunate that we were able to launch this venture uh, and, and we have these incredible brands to tap into when it comes to all the category tailwind that we're seeing. So whether it's, uh, you know, anything from kind of clean skincare with, you know, more clinical benefits to stress, sleep and anxiety on the wellness side to um, kind of the, the healthy hair movement. I mean, there's so many cool um, categories that have just built this, this incredible momentum from the consumer being aware of what they're putting on their skin, what they're ingesting, what their you know, products they're using on their body and their hair. And so I couldn't be more excited to be an investor in this space. And I think our differentiation and that expertise that we bring um, really sets us up for success. This makes complete sense. And it's just being at the right place at the right time and riding the wave that, that the market that tailwinds are here to show. So super to hear. Before we get uh, into more details about True Beauty, I just would love to know more about your personal background and how that's helped you in leading currently the venture you're doing. So you've developed the expertise in range of areas, right? You mentioned you did investment banking. So you have expertise in financial analysis and you've also done operator experience. So definitely strategy and business development have been up your sleeves for the few years before starting True Beauty. Uh, curious to know how you think that these experiences have set you up to lead True Beauty and gives you the confidence of being well-equipped to lead a good show. That's a great question. And, and I, I, I feel like I'm fortunate that my worlds have 
collided in the way that they have at True Beauty Ventures. I wish I could say that I perfectly was the architect in how it all happened, but you know, sometimes decisions that you make from a professional standpoint, you know, take you to different places and doors open and you you decide to walk through. And it just so happens that in my case, I was able to build a very strong foundation in financial analysis, as you mentioned at UBS, in investing at L. Catterton and at Tengram Capital, which were the two private equity firms that I was at. Um, but then the ability to kind of cross over and to be an operator in both beauty and wellness, I think that kind of rounding out of experience just gives me such a broader perspective. Um, and I and that was the driving force really for kind of jumping over from the finance side to, to the operating side and kind of crossing and sitting on the other side of the table is to understand the, the things that I was uh, you know, analyzing and the kind of technical aspects that I was um, you know, reviewing and putting into place and, and diligencing as an investor. I wanted to really understand how you actually execute those in practice. And so my operating roles gave me you know, a whole host of, of skills. But I think one of those is to really understand when you're on one side of the table and you're saying, oh, you really need to do X, Y, and Z, what it takes being the recipient of that information on the other side of the table and actually knowing how to execute that, get a team motivated, you know, guide them to hit those milestones to be able to achieve what the investor is guiding you to do. Um, so I think that my current role, um, I'm able to tap into both of those to not only help me be a better investor for emerging growth brands, but also to really figure out the best way to add value because I've been on both sides. Um, and so I think I, when I speak to other individuals that are kind of thinking, oh gosh, I, you know, I'm, I've been in finance for a really long time. You know, what should I do next? I, I really encourage taking those leaps where you can learn a new skill set. And whether you decide to go to business school, in my case, I decided I, I wanted to go right into my operating roles, or you decide to, to take a leap and, and try something completely new. I do think it's all additive to a great foundation of, you know, financial analysis and, and, uh, and, and in, in my case, investing. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm very fortunate that, that I've been able to um, kind of achieve both of those things. And I do think it has made me a stronger investor because of it. I can't agree more. And uh, coincidentally, I have a very similar background as you as well. So can relate totally to what you're saying. So I did a bit of investing. And before coming to school, I was an operator building a health tech startup back in India called Baby Chakra for about three years before coming to school. And I intend to do continue doing investing post school as well. So what, what you said, I could completely relate to. And I'll just stop it off with one additional point that for me, it's also about just empathizing with the founder journey a lot, lot more now from the other side of the table. Um, it's much easier to, you know, work on those Excel numbers and say just with that 10 to 12% growth, can you become like a hundred million dollar company in six years? Um, but being being on the other side, trying to move that needle to 10 to 12% um, is, is the thing that I, I feel I'll be empathetic to founders and, and their teams in the journeys a lot, lot more as an investor now. Absolutely. And, and when you've been on the other side, you know just how hard 
that is to do. So, you know, being able to empathize, being able to commiserate with the founders that I speak to, just, you know, saying I've, I've been in your shoes. I've run a very small business um, with a very lean team and lofty goals. Um, but I also think where it's been helpful for founders is also, and we really believe in this given our, our sector expertise is helping them avoid mistakes that they would potentially naturally make just because we've seen we've seen a lot from and from a pattern recognition um, in, in investing and also as in my case an operator you've seen where things can go wrong so if we could help those founders avoid mistakes early there's obviously a capital efficiency to that and also you know getting them to their the place that they want to be faster so I'm uh, yeah I couldn't agree with you more uh, on that comment on, on empathizing and then hopefully being excellent mentors to them in that respect completely agree and and with that I'd love to hear more from you about your investing thesis and the stages and sec you know specifics about how you look at evaluating companies so uh, what is the criteria that matters most to you or a set of criteria that you, you look at most when you're making investment decisions? And if you could talk through, say, your first investment decision that you made, it would be great to hear from you. Sure. So at True Beauty Ventures, uh, we invest in beauty and wellness brands in the emerging growth end of the market. So we we work with a lot of early stage brands. Um, and while we see many of them, given uh, the amount of brands that are launched in the space today, we have a pretty rigorous and, and disciplined investment criteria. Uh, given the years of investing in the space, operating the space, we kind of know the things that we like to look for. And our approach is uh, overall for uh, the portfolio is to it's to have between 10 and 15 brands in our portfolio. So it's not many brands. And when you think about the concentration compared to other venture capital funds, it's actually on the smaller side. Um, so we, we're very disciplined when it comes to the brands that we wanna invest in. And, and we're writing one to $3 million checks and we have the ability to write up to $5 million checks. Um, so it's, it's, they're not small checks we're putting in and they're not you know, quote unquote lottery tickets uh, for you know, lack of a better word, um, we're really thoughtful in that. And so to answer your question around what we look for, you know, I, I wish I could say that there's, you know, one or two things that really stand out, but because we have such a high standard and a high bar, there's a, you know, a lot, almost everything that I'm going to quote to you uh, matters. Um, and I, but I think it, it really starts with, of course, the brand and the founder. Um, and because, you know, we're big believers in, in particular in beauty and the importance of the narrative and the storytelling and the emotional connection that a consumer can develop with a brand, you know, making sure that that brand story is compelling, uh, unique, differentiated, and, and authentic um, is so important to us. And, and oftentimes that brand story is tied to a founder story. And, you know, we love working with talented, passionate founders ideally who've done this before, right? Who are, who come from the industry. Um, and so uh, these founders, uh, we really, you know, we put a lot of, of faith and trust in, in them. And so we vet that relationship quite a bit. Uh, and while it's, you know, we live in a Zoom world and I hope to get to meet some of our founders face-to-face, -face, it is really important that the founders are motivated, passionate, and, and really want 
our guidance and want a partner to come in to help them. Um, and it's, you know, whether it's avoiding mistakes, as I mentioned before, or it's access to our network, but those founders really need to be receptive to having a strategic partner like us involved. Um, the, the, the next thing would be really product. I mean, it's, it's beauty after all, for the most part, and wellness as well is, is, is catching up, but the importance of product differentiation and the, import, the importance of um, you know, people wanting to repurchase the product. If it's not a good product, you can get them to purchase one time, but then how do you get them to come back? So really an emphasis on the, on the efficacy, the ingredients, and we know that, that clean ingredients, sustainability are table stakes today, right? If you're launching a brand today, and you don't have clean ingredients or a point of view on sustainability, I mean, you're behind the ball, right? So that's something that we dig into a lot. The next thing is distribution. Uh, most brands, when they're early, launch on direct-to-consumer, and that makes total sense. There are fewer barriers to entry there. Um, but we strongly believe, particularly in beauty, that the, that the consumer wants to experience um, these products in an omni-channel way. And there's something very important about discovery and experience with, with brands. And a lot of that will continue to come from the retail selling environment. And while it's changing in a post-COVID world, it's still gonna be incredibly important. So we look at brands that have a strong direct-to-consumer foundation and ideally partner with one or two key anchor retail partners that help them brand build and help them you know, launch in a productive way. And we hate to see when brands, and this can happen quite a bit, founders are, are enticed by, by a purchase order and they go out there and they over proliferate their distribution because they don't want to say no to a sale. But the reality is for us, it's more important to have narrow but productive distribution than to have the opposite. Um, so we dig in very closely in, into distribution. And then on the on traction, right? I mean, we, we invest early stage, but we normally like to see a brand that's beyond proof of concept that has some consumer traction, ideally doing between one and two million of revenue and has kind of a, so, a strong social following and other proof points that there is momentum behind the brand, that there's something about it and people are talking about it. So we'll dig into, um, do some social listening and try to figure out what are consumers saying about, is it, are people talking about the product? Are they talking about the a specific benefit or ingredient or the founder? Like, what is it that's creating this, this buzz for the brand? Um, and then I think, you know, when, and when we look at the whole picture, uh, we would love for a brand to check as many of those boxes as possible. And if they don't, you know, we, the, the beauty about what we do is, you know, we, we have conversations early and there's an opportunity if we can't invest at that earlier stage, we can wait until the next round. And, and if we've developed a good relationship with the founder over time, you know, there may be an opportunity for us to step in when they're a little further along in their journey. And then we can kind of come in and, and accelerate them even further using our experience, our network, um, of course, our capital uh, to get them to the next level. This is incredibly comprehensive. I think uh, amazing playbook. And I hope there are a few founders listening to the show. And if they, if, and when they hear this, I think they know when to reach out to you um, and how to present themselves. So as to um, appeal to the investment thesis at True Beauty. So thanks for sharing it. Uh, it's really comprehensive. 
Um, changing gears a little bit, uh, we heard in one of your interviews with Beauty Independent, you emphasized the influence of uh, the CEO of Revive Skincare, Ilana, um, who also is a great female role model, that how much of an influence she had on forming your business education. What are the most important things you learned from her and that remain with you to this day? Gosh, I am. Um, I couldn't say enough about about Alana as as a mentor, a colleague, and a friend. I, um, if I look back on my career, particularly in finance, it was pretty challenging to find female mentors. Um, and I developed, you know, great relationships with some of of the of the women that I worked with. But at the highest level, right at the partner level, um, especially in private equity, it was very rare to see women at that height. Um, and so what was interesting for me is that when I crossed over into the operating side, that was kind of the first time that I really saw a woman in a, that, that leadership position. And in the case of Alana, um, she was the, the CEO of Laura Geller, which was a brand that I worked with for three years. And I worked for her and she taught me, I mean, she was so instrumental in, in my development as a professional and she taught me so much and I could probably have a whole podcast on everything that um, I learned from her. But when you think about someone, you know, who in her leadership position showed me what it is to be a strong, intelligent businesswoman who could articulate her point of view with confidence and grace. I think it was just such a wonder to see. Um, and just learning through osmosis from seeing her interact and run her team. Um, so, you know, for me, I mean, she embodied really everything of, of what a leader should be. Uh, she's calm under pressure, uh, which I'm working, <laughs> working on still. Um, she has the tenacity really to overcome any challenge that gets thrown her way. And, and then she, you know, she always used humor to get you through the rough patches. So almost not taking yourself too, too seriously through it all. Um, and then I think, you know, her encouraging me to really believe in myself um, and to ask for what I want. I mean, she would always say, what's the worst that can happen? They'll just tell you no. All right, well, that's okay, go for it. Um, and so that confidence to really ask for what I think, what I thought I, I deserved was really important um, and, and something that stuck with me. And I think my time learning from her at Laura Geller profoundly shaped my ability to, uh, to really kind of achieve new heights in my professional career. And, and not just professionally, I mean, she's an amazing wife and mother. So one day um, hope to aspire to be able to really do it all and balance it in the way that she did. Uh, and, and, you know, she's still, as far as a tribute venture, she's an advisor to us. So I, I love being able to utilize her to help our brand founders also kind of get that mentoring like experience. So she's, yeah, she's phenomenal. That's really inspiring to hear. And the way you've cultivated your relationship is also inspiring because you want to work with your mentor and that's one of the relationships you cultivate as well. So uh, really, really inspiring to hear what you just shared. On the same note, you touched a little bit upon it, but would love to know about your experience as a woman in finance and now in the VC industry. Um, and what do you believe remains to be done? Yeah, I mean, I, I alluded to it a little bit in my my, my role at UBS and at Catterton and, and Tengram. I, I think, fortunately, because I was always on the consumer side, there were more women than maybe some of the other 
teams, right, that, that tended to be almost entirely men or heavily weighted towards, towards men. Um, but I think when I entered VC, so it was the first time really, you know, I went from private equity to VC and I, I actually, I, I didn't have an appreciation for how limited the amount of women, you know, and, and, and I should say there's a, a couple of stats and I'm sure you probably saw them uh, on Forbes, but there's only 5.6% of, of US-based firms are women-led in the VC community. And then of those, I think it's less than 3%, you have VC partners that are women. So it's just, the stats are, are pretty staggering when it comes to VC in particular. And I, I didn't appreciate that. And, and I'm sure they're not as great in, in private equity either, but I was really surprised on the VC side. And when you think about the work that we still have to do is tremendous. And I'm, I'm fortunate that my partner, Rich Gersten, has always been such a supporter of women, both on the investing side and on the brand side. So he's always hired women in terms of uh, investment professionals on his team. Again, he's been focused on beauty almost his entire career. So it made sense for him to do that. It was smart of him to do that. And then on the brand side, he would hire mostly women leaders and executives for his, his teams. And so when he and I set out to, to launch True Beauty Ventures, I think there was no question in his mind that he wanted a female partner and he wanted to build out a, a female junior team. And, and our you know, Caroline Weintraub um, is our, our senior associate. Uh, and when we think about the brands that we're supporting as investors, it's, it's predominantly female founders and a large portion are also diverse women. Um, so that's another part of our mission. Um, and, and I think the work that we may do as a fund is, you know, we're going to try to chip away at that number, but it's going to take a lot of other um, VCs and, and male partners to kind of realize the same thing that Rich has realized, which is that having women on both sides of the table are so important to, to delivering returns. Um, and if you're just focused on outcomes and the math, then it should be a no-brainer, right? It's not something that should be um, kind of a twist twist your arm type of thing to do. Um, and, I, yeah, and I'm fortunate that I've been able to uh, network with a lot of other women-led VCs. And, you know, I connect with them uh, once a month and we all kind of share ideas and deals and really support each other and hold each other up because it's there's there are very few of us so I love seeing that camaraderie um, and I'm, I'm I'm hopeful that while the stats are a bit staggering that you know we'll be able to improve them next year and hopefully uh, accelerate the that that improvement over time um, but it's 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 going to be a challenge and and we're we're all going to do the best that we can and i think the other thing which is which is why i love podcasts like these that can reach out to younger generations if, if the younger younger women can see other women in my seat and in you know leadership roles at brands and have those additional mentors and people to aspire to, then they know that that's always, a, that's a possibility um, and that it's it's not um, a stretch to see themselves in those roles. Uh, and so it's it's something I'm very dedicated to is, is finding uh, younger women to mentor since I didn't have that 
uh, meant much of that in my earlier years of my career. This is amazing, really well put because we agree to all of this very much. And towards the end, what you alluded that the the reason why we started this podcast was very much to bring out these candid conversations and hear from women like yourself who've been in a position um, of an implicit or an explicit bias, talk about it, but also be in a position to create an impact, uh, be in a position to lead the change um, and eventually influence so that there is a sustainable change that we drive to. So this was an amazing conversation, Christina. You've been an inspiration to not just me and Rishvina, but to all of us, I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it. Um, thanks so much for your work. And we're yet not done. So we're going to move on to our next segment of rapid fire questions. Um, but this has been an amazing conversation. No, thank you so much. I, I'm so happy that that you asked me to participate. And, um, you know, if there's anything else that I could do to help your audience, I would love to, to, to do that. Love it. Thank you so much. And with that, you're welcome. Transition to our rapid fire segment. Um, like the name suggests, you will try try and answer as soon as you can. And it's a okay. short have just right questions. Um, so we begin with a bit of a, a seasonality this time because we are in the pandemic, which we cannot ignore. The first question for you is, are you a Zoom person now or you're still an in-person kind of person? I love Zoom, I have to say. it's I can have meetings within a few minutes of each other. And it's great um, because I can squeeze so much into my day. The downside is that there is a little bit of the Zoom fatigue. And at some point I do get a little sick of seeing myself um, and seeing myself talk. Um, but I do like how much I could reach out and how many conversations I can have, particularly with brands in a day versus having to travel. That being said, I do think um, in-person interaction is amazing. And when I do get to have it, it's so refreshing. But for now, I'm pretty comfortable with Zoom life. Love it. Um, again, on a, a little bit lighter note, what is your spirit animal? Oh, a dolphin. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe I'm a little biased because I'm in Miami and, uh, but when I see a dolphin, there's just, there's just something so magical about it. And I, I don't know, I picture myself as one in another life, which is bizarre. That's lovely. My next question is probably already answered, but what is your getaway destination? Is it Miami, which is where you already are? Yes, Miami's where I live. Um, I, I, I love to do the opposite of where I live. So going um, skiing or going into a you know, forest nature type environment uh, is always kind of my, my preference because, you know, thankfully I live near the beach. So, and that has enticed on the beach side, but doing something in, in, uh, in nature is really cool for me. That makes sense. A little bit more on serious note, would love to know the last book that you read or any other podcast that you heard that you really got inspired by. Yeah, so um, I guess well, the last one that I, I listened to on, on Audible, because I'm a big runner and, and love listening to books, I read um, Leonard Lauder's book. Um, before that, I read uh, Daring Greatly, or I listened to Daring Greatly, the Brene Brown book. Um, and then before that, one of the ones that really transformed my thinking um, is The Universe Has Your Back by Gabrielle Bernstein. And mainly because I'm a super type A person, <laughs> um, a lot of us are, where we feel like we could 
plot and control the way that things are going to happen and what you quickly realize, and I realized it through a personal experience um, with my family's health, is you can't control a lot. And the universe sometimes throws things at you. Um, but if you're open to what that experience was and what you could learn from it, um, that there's such, there's a reason for it. And there's a reason you go through what you go through. Um, and the universe is kind of always um, helping you find the right answer and leading you to the right place. Um, and it's just very different to the way I would normally think. So I, I found it incredibly valuable. I highly recommend it to people. This is amazing. Uh, and the last one for the day is what's your one motto in life? Oh my gosh, my one model in life. Um, you know, it, it's a motto that I, I tell myself um, when I'm in the most challenging of situations and it's super simple, but it's, you can do anything you put your mind to. And I've used it in everything from a big meeting or a challenging conversation that I have to have to something as silly as skiing. I'm, a, I'm a, not a great skier and I get very afraid. And the last time I was on one of these slopes, I just kept repeating, close my eyes and repeat myself. You can put anything, you can do anything you put your mind to, whether that's, you know, skiing down a slope or dealing with, you know, really challenging situation at work. Um, and if you just believe in that and, and believe that you're unstoppable, um, it gives uh, personally it gives me the confidence and helps me deal with fear, which you know we all have at times. Um, so that would be mine, uh, although it's a little simple and maybe maybe a bit cliche, but it works for me. No, for sure, it seems definitely very effective. And thank you for that. Uh, with that, we come to a conclusion. Thank you so much again, Christina. This was a lovely conversation. Thanks again for being on the show. No, thank you so much. I'm really happy to have done it and, and to have met you. Thank you. Same, yeah.